The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Ladies and gentlemen, we apologize for the interruption of our regularly scheduled programs. This is a special announcement from Commissioner Gordon's office. Switch it, Joe. Studio 9. You're on the air, Commissioner. <coughs> Hello, criminals, wherever you are out there. Do you hear me, criminals? This is Police Commissioner Gordon. The, the boy wonder is about to make a dramatic confession. That story in the paper about the bank money being counterfeit, it was false. It was a ruse. It was a trick of Batman's to make you try again. That money you stole last night is real. A statement from the editor of the Gotham City Times. This morning's headline was entirely untrue. Look. It's signed and notarized. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 6, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to our show today where we take a, a look at the ongoing trials and tribulations and victories of U.S. President Donald Trump. And joining us in studio again today, as he does quite regularly, is Salim Mansour, Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science. Welcome once again, Salim. Thank you. Well, as usual, we'll start by reminding our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, where you can access all of our past broadcasts. Well, Salim, it just never ends, does it? <laughs> <laughs> the attacks against Donald Trump, everybody saying that he's a lame president, like some of this, you know, Trump a lame duck already written by the Canadian media. It hasn't stopped, as if he were still on the podium running for election. Yes. Uh, we've been seeing this now for two years, isn't it? I mean, uh, from J June of 2015, when he came down his tower, uh, the escalator announcing his candidacy, till now, and one theme is now pretty much clear, that Trump is the master of insult. <laughs> <laughs> Receiving them or giving them? <laughs> Both, yeah. right. and, and, and that's why um, we might say that he is the president of the United States, he's the 45th president, because the people elected him, the people who elected him saw that Trump is a fighter. He's a pugilist. He boxes. Uh, he does the world wrestling thing. And, and, and uh, the latest uh, in uh, a tweet uh, this week was one about he slamming uh, CNN on, on, on the wrestling uh, ring. Uh, so he's a fighter, and, and he will fight. If, if you punch him, he will punch you back 10 times harder. And the people appreciated that, if you, again, put it in context. People appreciated that, that now for the, they have a man who fights, which means if, if a man didn't fight for what he believed to be true, and the insults against him, then why would he fight for the people? And so that, again, 
uh, is something that we need to think about, reflect about, uh, given the history of Republican and conservative leadership over the last quarter century or more, that they would buckle down against the fury of attack from mainstream media and their opponents. There have been a lot of controversies still going on, ongoing, especially the whole issue about Russia. Have, have we not put that to bed yet, the whole Russian thing? You wouldn't know it from listening to the media today. Well, Is it, there anything there at all? No, there's nothing there. I mean, in fact, it is the CNN uh, folks who who have been caught on uh, Project Veritas tapes talking about, what was it, Van Jones saying? Van Jones said it was a nothing burger. Nothing burger, and, and then somebody else on the Jimmy CNN. Carr, the associate producer, basically saying that yeah. those ethics that you learn in journalism school, that they're adorable, but this is the <laughs> real world, and it's all about ratings, and right now people just want to hear about Russia, so they make it up. And he said that there is, they have nothing. Yes. They've got nothing on Trump. There's no evidence. No evidence, and, and it's just the opposite. The evidence of piling up on the other side, which is what Trump had been pointing out, uh, and others had been pointing out, that is, the biggest leaker we now know was the former FBI director fired by Trump, James Comey. Comey. He, he himself admitted that he had leaked uh, private conversation and, and so on and so forth, and we can list a whole number of things. But no, it is not gone. And it is not gone because what they have done is they have flipped it over into obstruction of justice. And so the special counsel appointed, which was one of the things that uh, James the, Comey what's, did. What's, what's the obstruct, obstruction of justice now? The, what the, have they the, flipped to what? The obstruction of justice that the, on the basis of which the special counsel was appointed, uh, Robert Mueller, former FBI director. But which way the investigation will go is now still uh, uh, a little bit of... Uh, confusing, is that Trump asked James Comey in their private meeting where James Comey said during the Senate hearing that Trump asked him to lay off General Michael Flynn. Well, I think the uh, closer quote was that he hoped that the Flynn investigation would go away. And and uh, Comey took that as being a direct order from the president. Exactly. To drop it. So all of that will be investigated, or, yeah. or, sh- or 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 will come out as it's already coming out. But the point is that that is the obstruction of justice, which is what the Democrats with the Trump derangement syndrome, particularly this woman um, Maxine Waters and Nancy Pelosi and others, have been screaming that Trump and his people have been in, involved in obstruction of justice. Well, isn't Comey then guilty of obstruction? or at least uh, leaking information that um, it was privileged. Precisely. I mean, that, here you are talking to your president, and you're leaking out the, 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 what, the, the contents of a, of a private speech. Precisely, and that's, that's the amusing part of it, and this is what is happening, that they, there's no, they don't have a thing on Trump, and yet all of this evidence is coming up. So that the question of obstruction of justice leads to what was Loretta Lynch doing, talking to the spouse of the Democratic presidential candidate who was under investigation of the FBI for her server and the missing emails and so on and so forth. So all of this is going to come out. What Trump has done is a classic jujitsu. And so back to tweeting. All that he had been tweeting and, in, in, and, and the latest ones were seen as Trump being undignified, as being rude, as being crude, as being a bully, you know, I mean, remember when Trump said that, you know, this was way back in January, 
that he has found out that Obama and his people have been wiretapping him in the Trump Tower. And people went ballistic, that is the media and, and, the, and the Democrats and others, that this was all false accusation. But guess what? If you remove the word wiretapping and put the word surveillance, Trump was absolutely dead on. Yes, they were surveilling. They were surveilling. Uh, some floors they in these buildings, yeah. Exactly. They are masters. So in, on every issue, this man has come out. So, so let me just point out to your audience, this whole issue of tweeting is going to become a subject matter of academic and serious discussion. It is not simply Trump sending out a 140-character message, getting up 4 o'clock in the morning and doing it. What it means, sociologically speaking, I would suggest, is tweeting is itself now a method of communication that Trump has established, going all the way back to his candidacy when he announces candidacy. And with that, he has connected with people. I believe he has something in the order of close to 100 million people following him on tweet. Mm-hmm. That's an awesome number. And what he does is he goes over the head of everybody to connect with the public. That's you know? more than any of the news services have in terms of their viewership. Now, you know, if, if Clinton or an Obama or a Democratic president was using Twitter in the way that Trump is using it, they would be lauded as embracing the youthful social media um you know, driving a new industry, those kinds of things, right? Being intelligent. But because he's Trump, because he's, well, quote-unquote Republican, he's he's a target. And when he tweets something, uh, for example, about the, the, the Megyn Kelly, or Megyn Kelly and, and, and blood and things like that coming out of a rise, um, people say that he's not dignifying the office of the President of the United States by tweeting things like that. And yet, where were these people? When you saw Clinton coming up with creative uses for cigars or, um, you know, Obama glad-handing dictators in Cuba, uh, the dignity of the office is now sullied because he tweets about Megyn Kelly's nose, and yet you have, you have these other things which are far more grie- grievous. Yeah, you, you, you're right, but if you dig deeper and put it in context of what you began with your observation about Clinton or Obama or any of the Democrats tweeting, the point of fact is they don't need to tweet. What we now know, forget the doubting Thomas, True, is, yes. uh, 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 is the general public knows, or especially the people who have voted for Trump knows, is the mainstream media owns the Democratic Party. It's no longer the mouthpiece of the Democratic Party. They do the job for the Democratic Party, you know. Uh, and, and, and so Trump had to find a way to connect with the people unfiltered, going over the head yes. of the mainstream media and reaching out to the people. Look, I mean, if we, if we examine all of this thing and talk about the Trump having uh, in some ways or in many ways, uh, abuse the dignity of the office, then the question emerges, which is what the American people are asking, where was the media when Clinton systematically abused the dignity of the office, you know? What was he doing? And quite literally, it, it, abused yeah, the dignity of the office. I mean, what was office. he doing with a 22-year-old intern mm-hmm. using the dignity of the office to use a 22-year-old intern 
for his personal pleasure within the sanctity of the Oval Office, but more so that when caught, he brought out his female cabinet members into the public, Madeleine Albright, who was his Secretary of State, Donna Shalala, who was his, you know, HHA secretary, that means deliberately brought out two women to defend Clinton. Where was the Dignity Office? Just one instant about it. The entire candidacy of Obama, where was the media exploring the record of Obama during the presidential campaign, the Jeremiah Rice, the Bill Ayers, the Rashid Khalidi, the record of uh, 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 Obama as a state senator in Illinois, the awful record, in fact, you know. Uh, and the complete on, silence regarding his falsified birth certificate that falsified, they yeah. put on the White House government or, website. Or his relationship, the relationship of his mother, the, the fraudulent claim of him as the author, which we now know, was ghostwritten, his books. Uh, where was the media? But worst of all, where was the Republican candidate during the election? That is John McCain, who basically ruled out that these are not going to be discussed. But every little twitch of Trump has been broadcast by the media. Going all the way back to, say, John F. Kennedy. To Franklin Roosevelt. So it is not something that happened yesterday with Trump. It has been the record of how the Democratic presidents have abused the dignity of the office. And so this is the crying of the wolf, isn't it? I do not wish to see you today. As a matter of fact, I do not wish to see you any day. As we're being honest, I'm not too thrilled at seeing you either. I was looking for Colonel Becker. He and General Burkhardt are in town. Dismissed! I wanted to thank him for a delightful evening. Why thank him? It was my wine. <laughs> told all those funny stories about the Russian front. German troops are eating their cartridge belts, marching in snow up to their waists, fighting night and day in raging blizzards. You call those funny stories? I laughed. <laughs> Miss. You're not going to believe all that stuff, are you? I do not wish to discuss it. Well, I happen to know that your German officers are fraternizing with the beautiful Russian women. The vodka's flowing like the Volga. There are parties every night. They're having a ball. <laughs> German officers do not fraternize with Russian women. <laughs> you can see they sucked you in like everybody else. Hogan, anyone returning from the Russian front tells the same stories as Colonel Becker. Of course. When you got a good thing going, you don't want to blow it. <laughs> Freezing in the winter is not a good thing. That's the propaganda. The truth is, all the German officers are buying into the ski resorts around Stalingrad. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I'd like to offer a heartfelt apology. Oh, it's not for something I did or something I said. Rather, in the aftermath of the US election, I just wanted to sincerely apologize to the public for my industry, the journalism business. Aside from Hillary Clinton, there was another casualty following the results of the November 8th election. And that other dead on arrival corpse was the once proud craft of journalism. Sean Hannity of the Fox News Network said it best back on October 26, 
when he tweeted the following in block caps, no less, quote, journalism is dead in America, end quote. He's right. And the carnage isn't just limited to the USA. Journalism is pretty much dead or dying financially, morally, and ethically in so many other jurisdictions too, including right here in Canada. You know, folks, there are editors of some daily newspapers that aren't even real journalists, but ex-political hacks. Yeah, it's that bad. And as we witnessed south of the border for the past 18 months or so, the prevailing slobbering love affair between an overwhelmingly left-wing media and the Democrats was downright embarrassing. I mean, next time, get a room, okay, guys? Indeed, forget about the New York Times slogan of all the news that's fit to print. Journalism's new unofficial mantra now seems to be, don't let the facts interfere with a good story. We're in studio with Salim Mansour, and we're discussing the politics and mythology of Donald Trump. And, you know, um, Conrad Black, on his column of May 20th in the National Post, made some very interesting observations. And this concurs with what I think, what I've believed myself, this whole idea of tweeting and everything that Trump is doing. I have noticed a pattern that every time the media attacks Trump on something, it gets them a lot of mileage for a while. And then, sure enough, within a couple of weeks, it turns out Trump was right. Now, this is an interesting observation made by Conrad Black, and I agree with it. Quote, Trump lured his enemies to make and amplify uh, hysterical charges. They will now be revealed by the mechanism whose installation they demanded. A special counsel as unfounded and as maliciously false, right? He says the president's not a suave man, but he's very tough and very smart, and his enemies are not. He will win, and he will change America. Now, that's a powerful statement, but basically he's saying that what Trump's doing with a lot of these tweets and other statements is setting up the enemy so that they can, you know, fall into his trap and be knocked down. That's certainly the pattern I've seen. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, as I said in your last segment, Trump has done the classic jujitsu with yeah. his opponents, you know. He has used their lies, their... But he's setting them up, too. It's not just that they're coming out with the lie. He's, he's, he's baiting them. <laughs> Precisely. Well, I mean, yeah. he, he has used what he's called the fake news. Yes. And he has gone after the media, uh, especially the New York Times, the Washington Post, the CNN, etc., as fake news. And he is doing this, you know, regularly through the, through the primaries and into the post-election period or during the main general election and into the post-election period. One thing was clearly established, and which is, again, that after the noise, after the outrage, after everything, when people, when the media calmed down, when they went to the next bit of outrage, the people basically absorbed on reflection that Trump was right. I mean, take the, take the instance, for instance, when Trump went after John McCain. And and it was an outrage that here's a war hero and that Trump had insulted him and so on. And this he did during the primary. Now, was he simply uh, doing this as if, you know, it was something off the cup or had he had thought about this? Now, almost two years later, one can surmise that he had thought about it, that there was a lot of people veterans who didn't care about John McCain, who knew the record, who then saw during the 2000 election campaign that John McCain basically abdicated in fighting for the people against Obama. And so 
It did not boomerang on Trump. It went just the other way around. Trump has become the, not only the master of the insult, I say this in a positive sense, because he's a master of branding his opponents. He called Jeb Bush low energy. Mm-hmm. He called, what was it he called Mark, Marco? He, oh. he called Marco, uh, little, little Marco. He called Ted Cruz, lying Ted Cruz, you know. He, he called Hillary the crooked Hillary. He, he became a master with that one stroke. He could just define the person and the people could relate and understand it. And, and this is what I point I want to make here about tweeting. I said tweeting is now, I mean, Trump has raised this into a whole different level which is Trump has made tweeting into what I would call the haiku of American politics. Those of you who know haiku, right? It is the Japanese art form, uh, uh, writing a, a verse in, in 17 syllables, yeah. you know, 575. Five. And in those 17 syllables, the beauty of a great haiku is a whole world of meaning for the person reading it or thinking, re- receiving it, to imagine. And that's the beauty of Trump's 140-letter tweet, you know, when, when, when he tweets out something. Look what happened with Megyn Kelly. She went after Trump right at the outset, you know, uh, in August of 2015, calling him up as a person who insulted women, Rosie O'Donnell, and he said only Rosie O'Donnell. But let's trace the record. Megyn Kelly calculated by taking on Trump, she is going to exploit her position as a woman, as an attractive woman, by the way. Fox News was promoting her, will, will exploit that to launch a career that will be bigger than maybe everybody else, which is what she did, you know. And she went to NBC. She destroyed the lives of Roger Ailes and others and and Fox, so on and so forth. But what happened to her? Trump went after her. And after the people and CNN and others, take Megyn Kelly's case, she today dropped like a thud. NBC wants to unload her. Nobody cares about her anymore. Her career is washed out. Trump is in the White House. It's interesting, you know, with all of Trump's enunciations and the whole Comey thing, we're taught, remember he said, uh, you better be careful in case there was a recording. That's right. In a later tete-a-tete with the media, he made it very clear to them, you guys are going to be disappointed. Yes. Okay, which told me right away, okay, there's no recording. And then, then, of course, it came out, there's no recording. And they all acted, oh, my God, Trump is changing his mind all the time. When he, that has never happened. No, but the point of that particular tweet, Comey should hope that there is no recording of what he has said. Comey should hope. I mean, look at it. That's all it is, right? But it was based upon the fact that Trump was being surveilled, which was the earlier thing. The NSA, the FBI, the CIA were surveilling Trump Tower, which is where Comey and Trump met. So Comey knew about the fact that he was being taped. It was not that Trump was taping him. It was that Trump was being taped, (laughs) and therefore it was self-censorship. Comey was checkmated (laughs) by Trump. And so when he goes goes out into the Senate hearing, what he revealed on his own was that he woke up on Monday morning at night thinking, 
You know, if there is a tape there, let it be known. And he sent that letter to his friend, the lawyer who had been his FBI mate, and leaked it, right? So that was a confession, mm-hmm. you see? And now he is wrapped around in his own shenanigans. What I find fascinating, and is probably worthy of scholarly uh, research, is the fact that here you have Trump, um, the underdog culturally, because all of Hollywood was against him, all of the media were against him, even the so-called right-wing media of Fox. Yes. Uh, all of uh, New York television was against him. Every single outlet that you could think of was against him, and yet he uh, prevailed, and he continues to prevail. There is something psychologically um, disconnected, I think, between the culture of the United States and the people of the United States, because the people apparently support Trump and and continue to support him, and and yet every single one, almost without exception, of their cultural outlets um, are in direct opposition to this man and what he stands for. Do you have a comment about that, Salim? Yes. Uh, I remember the great book in, in Canada from, when was it, 1940s or 50s, Two Solitudes? Yes, yeah. Quebec. I actually referred to Quebec. Right. But, but the point is, I want to draw upon that analogy, two solitudes, two cultures. United States is two cultures. I mean, there was the culture north and south, the Yankees and the Southerners. But in the last 50 years or more, we can say that two cultures is what we are now describing, which people are describing, the culture of the coastal elite, California yes. uh, and, and New York, and the culture of the flyover country. The, the coastal elite is a shorthand for the academia, the media, you know, the Hollywood crowd, uh, the Democratic Party, and the, in, the immigrants of the last 50 years and more who have rallied around or who have become, in a sense, mobilized on the basis of identity politics and who is the party that is pushing identity politics. Whereas Trump came to represent, and he represents the idea, he doesn't care about gender, he doesn't care about color, he doesn't care about black and white. What he cares about is America, America first. And so that rises above identity politics. And all those people who were quibbling about Trump doesn't understand constitution, it is Ted Cruz, the constitution. The point was identity politics is the biggest subversion of the constitution because the constitution about is about individual rights. Right which we have talked about and we have been struggling with and pointing out which in Canada multiculturalism is destroying the foundation of the idea of classical liberalism which is about individual rights. You see, so the, the, the Democrats and the coastal elite are about the group rights. So Trump went above that and Trump identified with it. So yes, you're, you're absolutely right, uh, Robert. I would say that there's two cultures now. And what Trump has done, he has pulled the curtain on the media that had the pretension that they were representing uh, the people of America. They are not. They're not reporting to the people of America. They're not representing the people of America. They're representing a segment of the American population, the coastal elite. And so it is a, a, a heavily partisan media. Well, let's pick up on that on the other side when we return. Hi. You made it just in time. We're on in 10 seconds, honey. Don't you honey me, buster. (laughs) What's wrong? Nothing. Well, Linda. Stand by. Good evening, and welcome to Up to the Minute News with America's favorite anchor couple, 
the Mr. and Mrs. of TV newscasting, Steve and Linda Bradshaw. <laughs> From the mountains to the prairies, to the ocean white with foam, a gracious good evening. That a big uh, communication of a breakdown at the phone company is tonight's top story. A spokesperson for the company has stated, as soon as I find out what is causing our problem, I can better determine how to solve it. Linda? Thank you, Steve. I have no intention of discussing the matter at this time, stated Senate investigator Ralph J. Spoonman. I will do whatever is necessary to see that the filthy liar gets what he deserves. <laughs> Storm warnings and an icy front. <laughs> and those sailing into choppy waters are advised to use extreme caution. Linda. Stick it in your ear. <laughs> Is this year's theme at the hearing aid manufacturer's <laughs> The convention is sponsoring free hearing tests to make the public more aware of all the things that have been going on behind their backs for much too long. <laughs> Back to you, Steve. <laughs> in court today, immoral conduct charges against... Councilman Peterson were dropped due to insufficient evidence <laughs> to support the accusations made. Back to you, Linda. Thank you, Steve. National Secretary Week has started, and all over the nation, secretaries are being kept. Hopping from luncheons <laughs> and satisfied bosses shower them with gifts as a way of saying thanks for all those little extras they perform all year long. <laughs> Any comment on that, Steve? <laughs> I always say there's nothing like a good secretary to keep a man's affairs in order. <laughs> rates are up 18% this year. This 5% increase over last year has been attributed to unfaithful middle-aged husbands who are insecure about their masculinity. Steve? I'm just as good as I ever was. <laughs> Proclaimed 60-year-old Rocky Gravelano, ex-Olympic weightlifting champ. To celebrate his birthday, Gravelano pressed 650 pounds, proving that a man is as virile as he is allowed to be. <laughs> there you have it, Linda. There was a lot of hot air around <laughs> when the annual upstate balloon races were held. The festivities got off to a hopeful start, but failed miserably when poor air circulation forced many to land due to loss of momentum. <laughs> the ball's in your court now, Steve. Psychologists at Northwestern University have determined that aggressive women who insist on competing for men's jobs <laughs> tend to suffer from an acute lack of femininity, grace, wit, and general loss of sex appeal. <laughs> it's all yours, Linda. A scandal 
that could ruin a career. Rocked Hollywood today as actress Buffy Starr announced that she was suing her longtime husband for divorce. Her hired detective uncovered a hotbed of information that could lay waste to an otherwise impeccable reputation. She was quoted as saying, I will stop at nothing to make sure he never works in this town again. <laughs> it's up to you, Steve. Guilty on all charges. Was the plea ended by Jack Taylor, city planner, indicted for conflict of interests today at City Hall. The truly remorseful Taylor threw himself on the mercy of the court, screaming, I swear I'll never do that again, Linda. <laughs> this is Steve. And Linda Bradshaw wishing you a triumphant good evening. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all of our financial supporters who've made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts. Well, Salim, we've heard a lot about all the horrible things that Trump is supposedly not done, is doing. I mean, some of these things here, Trump a lame duck already. Diane Francis saying that his trip around the world was useless, nothing happened, he didn't accomplish anything. We've already gone through all that, right? His meeting in Saudi Arabia, etc. And she says, uh, uh, quote, um, Trump believes his foreign trip was a triumph when it wasn't. And as for Paris, the movement behind it won't end. Like, what is that supposed to mean? Of course the movement behind it won't end. What does that say about Trump? Nothing. What has Trump done right? Has he done anything right? Because we sure wouldn't know about it from our media. Well, this is again <laughs> fascinating. The, the media storm over Trump's tweet is like a smoke hiding the actual work that is going on. And it could possibly be that there is in this madness of, of Twitter thing that Trump has deliberately done this uh, so that his agenda can go on, move forward. Here we are talking two days after America's 4th of July, Independence Day. Today, the gas price in America was the lowest in 12 years. It is somewhere around about American dollar fifty a gallon. We are paying here close to $5 plus gallon or four liter in, in, in Canada. So the people driving in America, which is what everybody does, can see the accomplishment. And when Trump talks about not that America is going to be I mean, energy self-sufficient, Trump and his people are talking about energy dominance. What does that mean? It is shaking the world economy in the sense of the world economy that was being held by the throat by OPEC for the last 40 years. OPEC has been smashed. Russian power, in the sense based upon energy resource, has been smashed. You see, people understand that, or at least the more you know, uh, 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 thinking people, reflective people understand that. So where is Diana Francis coming from? You know, um, 
we can list other things. I mean, uh, well, she's coming uh, from another culture, apparently. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> the coastal elite culture. You know, I, I, I've always, um, ever since Diane Francis came out and endorsed a one-child policy of China, saying that the rest of the world should follow suit. Uh, anything she says, in my mind, is 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 very questionable. You know? So here, here it is not only Don Francis, yeah. the folks at New York Times and Washington yeah, sure. Post and LA Times and CNN and on and on, MSNBC, they'd rather talk about Trump's Twitter issues than talk about the fact that illegal immigration is down by more than 70%. You know, mm-hmm. even without uh, the 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 uh, brick being laid for building the wall, though Trump keeps saying the wall will be will be built, several important legislations have been passed. One of the de- legislation that was passed only this week was Kate's law. This is about deporting and or taking uh, those illegal immigrants who have done criminal behavior. Uh, case law was about this this uh, Mexican illegal immigrant, four-time deported, who came back and ended up murdering this beautiful woman, uh, Kate, in, in, in San Francisco. So w- will the CNN talk about this? Obviously not, because they are the ones who want to see the amnesty on, 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 on illegal immigration. And this was the biggest issue. I mean, if there was one single issue that put Trump on the White House, it was the immigration issue. Wall symbolized it. So he's pushing ahead with that. He's pushing ahead with the EPA. He's stripping the EPA in his budget. You know, across the board, there was somewhere between 30 and 40 percent budget cut, which is what it is about. It is about limited government, bringing it down. He's deregulating the economy. Mm -hmm. He's putting away, pulling away all the red tape or as much of the red tape, which is reflecting in the boom in the stock market that is happening over the last, you know, uh, six months, starting right off the bat in January. On foreign policy side, look at it. The foreign media is reporting, if we follow, whether it is the BBC, whether it is the media coming from uh, the Middle East, uh, as some of us do, the ISIS has been smashed. Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq, which is what was being held by ISIL, which is where uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who self-declared Caliph of Islam in June of 2014, appeared in that famous mosque in Mosul, the Grand Mosque of Mosul, built in the 11th century or 12th century, and declared himself the Caliph, and that is the only public image that we have. Well... Mosul has been captured in a street-to-street fighting. ISIL fighters have been destroyed. And, 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 and the very mosque that these people use for their photo op, they destroyed. They destroyed a 12th century grand mosque. They turned it into a rubble. They're running. They're fleeing. Raqqa, the capital of ISIS in Syria, has fallen. Nobody's talking about it. Why? Because CNN is too busy talking about how Trump is threatening the Nothing journalists. Yeah. You know, whereas it is the journalists you know, who have been walking, Kathy Griffin walking with the severe head of Trump, right? You know, we're not, we're not in the United States here. We're sitting here in London, Ontario. I turn on my local radio stations, and I find, for the most part, with a few exceptions, obviously, it's almost unlistenable in yeah. terms of trying to get any facts out of the news. Same and, with the CBC. And so, all the CBC I haven't listened to for decades because what, what they do tell you is usually false and you've got to unlearn it yeah. later on anyway. Yeah. But 
how do we get around this fake news? I mean, I guess doing a show like this is one of the issues. Well, it sounds fun. You know, we're capitalists, so this looks like an opportunity for some from entrepreneurs out there to actually start up um, a proper media. Maybe the rebel media well, and think, Ezra Levant is on that road. Absolutely. That is what's absolutely. happening. And I think that we, you can take a lesson from what Salim just said about Donald Trump. Look at what he on the energy front, for example. He didn't fight everybody else by fighting them. He fought them by beating them. Exactly. Uh, by increasing production so that now they have to compete. Canada is going to find itself in this situation too. You think Canada is going to be able to adjust to Trump because all the Canadian media is saying that, well, Trudeau is just going to have to follow suit on most of these things. Well, they will have to backtrack because uh, I would argue that eventually it is not the Canadian public because we are so supine, so beholden. I think what sadly we have to say that Canadians in contrast to their American cousin, are beholden to their elite. The American 2016 election showed that there is enough Americans who are going to go after their elite, which is what resulted in Trump's election. We, on the other hand, uh, um, follow our elite, whether it is uh, the political elite, the, the academic elite, the public intellectual. Ezra Levan, for instance, is one voice out there, and you see how he has been treated except for those who still have the gumption in Canada to support the ideas of individual freedom, free market, capitalism. The vast majority of the public is beholden. And, and, and that's the debate we, have, we are not having in Canada. But coming back to, uh, back to Trump and, and, and America, and American economy, it is like gravity. The fact of the matter is 80% of our economic well-being is connected to America. And it is the pressure from America that will make us call uncle quietly and change our policies. That's how I see it happening myself, yeah. One can only hope. <laughs> we are determined to build an economy which works for everyone, not only for the richest 1%, so that each and every person can benefit from economic growth. And we are going to refuse to give in to pressure to change our profound innermost values to win easy votes. People in the world expect more from us and we expect more of ourselves. In the end, my friends, there is a choice to be made. Strong, diverse, resilient countries like Canada didn't happen by accident, and they won't continue without effort. Every single day, we need to choose hope over fear, diversity over division. Fear has never created a, a single job or fed a single family. And those who exploit it will never solve the problems that have created such anxiety. Our citizens, the nearly seven and a half billion people we collectively serve, are better than the cynics and pessimists think they are. Listen. Canada is a modest country. We know we can't solve these problems alone. We know we need to do this all together. We know it will be hard work. 
but we're Canadian and we're here to help. Gentlemen, from the newspapers I gather, there is quite some sentiment to the effect that the president is to be outgeneraled by crafty European politicians. And once again, America will walk out of conference rooms with empty pockets. You may allay those fears. America is through with conferences in rooms. The International Debt Conference, scheduled to be held tomorrow at the White House, will be held instead on a private yacht. The delegates to the Debt Conference will thus be my guests at a naval parade, which, quite by coincidence, I assure you, will consist of the largest concentration of naval strength in the history of this nation. Are we to infer that the president expects the debt conference will end in America's favor? Those debts have got to be paid. The president intends to collect by force? Those debts have got to be paid. Is the United States prepared to wage war against 15 leading nations? Those debts have got to be paid. That's all, gentlemen. Well, apparently next week, Donald Trump will be heading off to the G20 summit. People are talking about him getting together with Putin and talking about a few international events and issues. How do you see that going for Donald Trump? Well, those who say or question or are skeptical about any success of Donald Trump on uh, the foreign policy side will not recognize the shifts that have already taken place as a result of Trump being in the White House. At the G7 conference, he raised the issue of NATO, he raised the issue of climate change, and came back and basically scrapped the Paris Accord. The result is that Angela Merkel, who is hosting the G20 conference in Germany uh, this year, has already diluted much of the communique for G20, which is all negotiated before the conference takes place to be released, uh, diluted the whole issue of climate change, and it was not going to be in the communique coming out. So what does it reflect? The big hula-baloo about climate change, you know, is something that most people are having a second thought about it, except for those who have made climate change into their altar of whatever religious dedication. It is a matter now of a faith, not mm-hmm. of science. Uh, on other matters, that ahead of G20 meeting, Trump has been meeting bilaterally with some of the leading players. You had the Prime Minister of India visiting Trump, who gave Trump a big, bear big, head, big, big, big hug. Yes, big <laughs> bear hug. I mean, Trump will be meeting uh, Putin. But most interestingly, and to the outrage of of both Angela Merkel and the French uh, Macron, Trump is taking a trip to Poland to visit with the Polish Prime Minister. And why would that outrage them? The outrage is because Poland, Hungary, and some of the other East European members of the European Union are adamantly opposed to Angela Merkel and to Macron and others on what has happened on the question of immigration and bringing in uh, refugees, quote-unquote, from uh, the Middle East. And so they are in support of Trump's position. They are in support of Trump's position on climate change, on economics, and on defense policies. So Trump has been quietly, you might say, or media is not reporting it, that is the media in America, has been building up the military defense. Salim, why would the supposedly backward countries (laughs) support a seemingly positive kind of a policy like that and support Trump? Why would that be? Why would those countries 
not support the kind well, of immigration policies that Merkel is supporting and, and in turn support Trump? One of the reason is, if you recall, going back to the Bush administration when Bush and his people, famously Donald Rumsfeld, said about France and Germany that were opposed to Bush on Iraq, that there is, they represent the old Europe and there is a new Europe that supported it. In fact, in the coalition of the willing that participated in the Iraq war, it was the East European states that participated, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. And in that distinction of old Europe, new Europe, what was being pointed out, and I think with Trump it is even more so, is the old Europe, which is the coalition, the anchor of European Union, is basically turning the other state into satrapy or vassal of Brussels, which is what led to Brexit. That means individual states with their individual cultures, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, and of course Britain, who have their own history, own culture, and want their own parliaments to be responsible for their domestic laws and not bend to the bureaucrats in Brussels and to the parliamentarians in Stuttgart, want that independence. That is, European Union, yes, you know, there are trade-offs, better economic market, common currency, but that doesn't mean that you simply give up your own sovereignty and independence in running your own house. I think that's part of the reason that is what has happened. It's interesting because, uh, you know, my parents came from Hungary, and, yeah. and they tell us of the history of Hungary and what they were taught as children, and, and Hungary had a bad history with, with, with Muslims in the past, and that that history... The Ottoman Empire. Yes, and that history, and finally having them, you know, flung out of the country, etc., is what is part of their recollection yes. in, the, in the national mind. Is that, is that true of the other countries involved, too? Because I, I don't know if it's so much current politics as attaching that to a longer uh, record of history. I think there is the commonality is that the Hungarian, the Pole, the Czechs, the Romanians, and others, uh, having come out of the state of vassalage of the Eastern European Empire of Soviet Union, with the collapse of Soviet Union becoming independent, running, they're no longer members of the Warsaw Pacts, you know, that used mm -hmm. to be, and, and Moscow would direct their affairs. They don't want to be, again, under a new sort of vassalage, which is from Brussels. The other part of it has to do a lot with the question of uh, their proximity to Russia, a relationship with a country with which their memory is negative and bitter. All of that has uh, an immense factor in the making of that identity, which is what is being diluted, and, and diluted in the sense by uh, uh, immigration in numbers that threaten their way of life. Now, I, I would have thought it had more of a, a longer history behind it, why those countries were Well, so, there is a long history. Yeah. I mean, the relationship with... But so did Germany and France. They had the same, a lot of the same history, and yet they aren't uh, adopting that view. I'm wondering if, if Merkel and Macron are looking at the writing on the wall and perhaps even uh, Theresa May to some extent, because she did have a bit of a setback with the last election. You think that was an error in calling that election? Well, in the case of England, yes, I mean, there was an error, yeah. maybe in the sense of overconfidence uh, after the Brexit referendum. But then during the campaign, 
uh, that that numbers disappeared. And part of the reason is that people looked at the actual record of, say, Theresa May and what she had done when she was the home minister uh, in cutting back on policing, on increasing the immigration numbers, and so on. And then you had, during the campaign and leading up to the campaign, three major terrorist attacks. And that raised the whole issue of where was Theresa May and the conservative over the last so many years in dealing with this problem. So that was her own past come to haunt her in a way. That did. You know, and were it not for the Scottish vote that turned against SNP and voted for Conservative instead of going with Labour, that saved the bacon for Theresa May. The same division you saw, if you put the map, in the French election. The urban centers voted heavily for Macron. It's interesting that there's that distinction between urban and rural because... What drives politics, of course, is philosophy. Why would urban dwellers have a philosophy of globalism, socialism, communism, when um, rural people have a much more independent nationalism, individualism kind of philosophy? Is it, is it, is it the proximity to universities? Well, 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 <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean that, in, that in a symbolic sense. Uh, and, and, and part of the reason is that... In the last 50-odd years, the elite in the West are heavily pro-globalism. Uh, glo- they went globalism. You know, the whole European Union project was globalism. You know, And that started diluting the bonds of the people with, and those people who are not urban-based, who work the land, who work the coal mines, who work, you know, the stuff that makes the urban center live. Are bonded to abound with their native culture and native value. That's one reason I would say. The uh, other, so I would say, I would say that, that people in the country, especially those who live on farms and things, are, yeah. are a little more quote unquote self-sufficient than those in the in the larger urban centers where they require the trade, which is a given. But you'd think, you know, thinking on the right would would facilitate that as well. This, this idea yeah, but, of trade. But, 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 but that can be, exp- precisely, you're right. It can be explained in terms that the people who are self-sufficient are also more traditional-minded, mm-hmm. you know. So they're bound in what I would call traditional culture as opposed to the globalized culture that the media represents, you know. A globalized culture is now multiculturalism. Well, it would seem to me then that the writing would probably be on the wall as demographically we become more urbanized than in the future, near future, we will all become very globalistic, communistic, socialistic, however you want to describe it. Well, well, We're losing is, the, uh, the rural individualistic philosophy. Well, well this, is, this is in part where the West is in the process of quote unquote dying. I mean committing I'm a, suicide. Uh, uh, yeah, suicide. That is what, what Alfred Toynbee, the famous uh, English historian, pointed out. The civilization don't die, they commit suicide. It is not simply the matter of what you are pointing out, Robert. It's a matter of the fertility rate 
each of the major European states, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Den Denmark, Sweden, have the lowest fertility rate in the world. In fact, their fertility rate is below the rate necessary for a society to maintain itself. So immigration or bringing in people is a way to maintain the balance. And so back to again your original question, why is the urban centers operating on a globalist value? The reason in part also, apart from the elite, is that's where the migrants and immigrants uh, congregate because the immigrants first generation, second generation, they're not going out to work the land because they don't own the land. They're coming in and they become the service workers. They work in the hotels, they are the labor force, they are the ones who are meeting the needs of the elite in the gated communities. And that is where the elite and the, and the uh, immigrant population are sort of tied up in the yin and yang relationship. And it is not ironical that the Democratic Party today is not the party of the working class. It is the party of the very rich and the very poor, in the sense the party of the extremely rich and the poor who serve the extremely rich. Interesting. You, you know, uh, whether they're on food stamps or whether they are working, you know, in, for the gated community or whether they are in the service industries. The urban centers are service industry economy. And the flyover country is where the people, the native population live. And so we can see clearly that divide is taking place, and that's happening in Canada. I mean, that's why the Liberal Party won such a thumping victory that they didn't deserve to win in, in October of 2015. And that's where we are headed. And the Conservatives have no clue of how to deal with this problem, except trying to out-liberal the Liberal in their own game. Look at Patrick Brown in Ontario, you know, carbon tax and green energy policy and all of that. It is not challenging Kathleen Wynne. It's just saying that we will do it better. That's it. That's what we always hear. Celine, the hour has gone by, and uh, yes, we have a low fertility rate, I think, in the media as well, in yes. terms of getting a, a, a media growing that is actually informing the public. Yeah. Thank you once again for joining us, and we hope that we will become among those that will increase the fertility rate of actual news and knowledge when it comes to what's going on in the world. So please join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Oh, I didn't know they had beauty contests in Russia. Oh, every Saturday night at Officer's Club. You're right, Colonel. It is a dull bore at the Russian front. You say it's dull. Hmm. I'll show you more pictures. Hmm. This one is at the ski lodge. What's that in the cups? Hot buttered vodka. And now you can see why Colonel Becker painted such a grim picture of the Russian front. You know, I think the general staff should know about this. They already do. They're all sitting there drinking hot buttered vodka. No, I must go now. Oh, are you sure you can't stay? No, I want to get back to town before the shops close. I need a new bathing suit. Oh. There's nothing wrong with the old one. No, they wear out so quickly in the hot springs. Hot springs? Da. 
After we ski, we all jump in the hot springs and drink hot vodka from floating bottles. Oh, it's so relaxing. So enjoyable. You must send me to the hot springs. The Russian front. First, I sent you to the base psychiatrist. <laughs> I've been thinking about this for a long time. 45 minutes at least. 